Chapter Twenty Six of Looking Backward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Looking Backward, Two Thousand to Eighteen Eighty Seven by Edward Bellamy. Chapter Twenty Six. I think if a person were ever excusable for losing track of the days of the week, the circumstances excused me. Indeed, if I had been told that the method of reckoning time had been wholly changed and the days were now counted in lots of five, ten, or fifteen instead of seven. I should have been in no way surprised after what I had already heard and seen of the twentieth century. The first time that any inquiry as to the days of the week occurred to me was the morning following the conversation related in the last chapter. At the breakfast table, Dr. Leed asked me if I would care to hear a sermon. "'Is it Sunday, then?' I exclaimed. "'Yes,' he replied. "'It was on Friday, you see, when we made the lucky discovery of the buried chamber to which we owe your society this morning.' It was on Saturday morning, soon after midnight, that you first awoke, and Sunday afternoon, when you awoke the second time, with faculties fully regained. "'So you still have Sundays and sermons,' I said. We had prophets who foretold that long before this time the world would have dispensed with both. I am very curious to know how the ecclesiastical systems fit in with the rest of your social arrangements. I suppose you have a sort of national church— with official clergymen. Dr. Leed laughed, and Mrs. Leed and Edith seemed greatly amused. "'Why, Mr. West,' Edith said, "'what odd people you must think us. You were quite done with national religious establishments in the nineteenth century, and did you fancy we had gone back to them?' "'But how can voluntary churches and an unofficial clerical profession be reconciled with national ownership of all buildings?' and the industrial service required of all men, I answered. The religious practices of the people have naturally changed considerably in a century, replied Dr. Leed, but supposing them to have remained unchanged, our social system would accommodate them perfectly. The nation supplies any person, or number of persons, with buildings on guarantee of the rent, and they remain tenants while they pay it. As for the clergyman, if a number of persons wished the services of an individual for any particular end of their own, apart from the general service of the nation, they can always secure it, with that individual's own consent, of course, just as we secure the service of our editors, by contributing from their credit cards an indemnity to the nation for the loss of his services in general industry. This indemnity, paid the nation for the individual, answers to the salary in your day paid to the individual himself, and the various applications of this principle leave private initiative full play in all details to which national control is not applicable. Now, as to hearing a sermon to-day, if you wish to do so, you can either go to a church to hear it, or stay at home. How am I to hear it if I stay at home? Simply by accompanying us to the music-room at the proper hour, and selecting an easy chair. There are some who still prefer to hear sermons in church, but most of our preaching— like our musical performances, is not in public, but delivered in acoustically prepared chambers, connected by wire with subscribers' houses. If you prefer to go to a church, I shall be glad to accompany you, but I really don't believe you are likely to hear anywhere a better discourse than you will at home. I see by the paper that Mr. Barton is to preach this morning, and he preaches only by telephone, and to audiences often reaching one hundred and fifty thousand. 
the novelty of the experience of hearing a sermon under such circumstances would incline me to be one of Mr. Barton's hearers, if for no other reason, I said. An hour or two later, as I sat reading in the library, Edith came for me, and I followed her to the music-room, where Dr. and Mrs. Leed were waiting. We had not more than seated ourselves comfortably when the tinkle of a bell was heard, and a few moments after the voice of a man, at the pitch of ordinary conversation, addressed us, with an effect of proceeding from an invisible person in the room. This was what the voice said. Mr. Barton's Sermon We have had among us, during the past week, a critic from the nineteenth century, a living representative of the epoch of our great-grandparents. It would be strange if a fact so extraordinary had not somewhat strongly affected our imaginations. Perhaps most of us have been stimulated to some effort to realize the society of a century ago, and figure to ourselves what it must have been like to live then. In inviting you now to consider certain reflections upon this subject which have occurred to me, I presume that I shall rather follow than divert the course of your own thoughts. Edith whispered something to her father at this point, to which he nodded assent and turned to me. Mr. West, he said, Edith suggests that you may find it slightly embarrassing to listen to a discourse on the lines Mr. Barton is laying down, and if so, you need not be cheated out of a sermon. She will connect us with Mr. Sweetser's speaking-room, if you say so, and I can still promise you a very good discourse. No, no, I said. Believe me, I would much rather hear what Mr. Barton has to say. As you please, replied my host. When their father spoke to me, Edith had touched a screw, and the voice of Mr. Barton had ceased abruptly. Now, at another touch, the room was once more filled with the earnest, sympathetic tones which had already impressed me most favourably. I venture to assume that one effect has been common with us as a result of this effort at retrospection, and that it has been to leave us more than ever amazed at the stupendous change which one brief century has made in the material and moral conditions of humanity. Still, as regards the contrast between the poverty of the nation and the world in the nineteenth century, and their wealth now, it is not greater, possibly, than had been before seen in human history, perhaps not greater, for example, than that between the poverty of this country during the earliest colonial period of the seventeenth century, and the relatively great wealth it had attained at the close of the nineteenth, or between the England of William the Conqueror and that of Victoria. Although the aggregate riches of the nation did not then, as now, afford any accurate criterion of the masses of its people, yet instances like these afford partial parallels for the merely material side of the contrast between the nineteenth and the twentieth centuries. It is when we contemplate the moral aspect of that contrast that we find ourselves in the presence of a phenomenon for which history offers no precedent, however far back we may cast our eye. One might almost be excused who should exclaim, Here, surely, is something like a miracle. Nevertheless, when we give over idle wonder and begin to examine the seeming prodigy critically, we find it no prodigy at all, much less a miracle. It is not necessary to suppose a moral new birth of humanity, or a wholesale destruction of the wicked and survival of the good, to account for the fact before us. It finds its simple and obvious explanation in the reaction of a changed environment upon human nature. 
it means merely that a form of society which was founded on the pseudo-self-interest of selfishness and appealed solely to the antisocial and brutal side of human nature has been replaced by institutions based on the true self-interest of a rational unselfishness and appealing to the social and generous instincts of men my friends if you would see men again the beasts of prey they seemed in the nineteenth century all you have to do is to restore the old social and industrial system which taught them to view their natural prey in their fellow-men and find their gain in the loss of others no doubt it seems to you that no necessity however dire would have tempted you to subsist on what superior skill or strength enabled you to wrest from others equally needy but suppose it were not merely your own life that you were responsible for i know well that there must have been many a man among our ancestors who if it had been merely a question of his own life would sooner have given it up than nourished it by bread snatched from others but this he was not permitted to do he had dear lives dependent on him men loved women in those days as now god knows how they dared be fathers but they had babies as sweet no doubt to them as ours to us whom they must feed clothe educate the gentlest creatures are fierce when they have young to provide for and in that wolfish society the struggle for bread borrowed a peculiar desperation from the tenderest sentiments for the sake of those dependent on him a man might not choose but must plunge into the foul fight cheat overreach supplant defraud buy below worth and sell above break down the business by which his neighbour fed his young ones tempt men to buy what they ought not and to sell what they should not grind his labourers sweat his debtors cousin his creditors though a man sought it carefully with tears it was hard to find a way in which he could earn a living and provide for his family except by pressing in before some weaker rival and taking the food from his mouth even the ministers of religion were not exempt from this cruel necessity while they warned their flocks against the love of money regard for their families compelled them to keep an outlook for the pecuniary prizes of their calling poor fellows theirs was indeed a trying business preaching to man a generosity and unselfishness which they and everybody knew would in the existing state of the world reduce to poverty those who should practise them laying down laws of conduct which the law of self-preservation compelled men to break looking on the inhuman spectacle of society these worthy men bitterly bemoaned the depravity of human nature as if angelic nature wouldn't have been debauched in such a devil's school ah my friends believe me it is not now in this happy age that humanity is proving the divinity within it it was rather in those evil days when not even the fight for life with one another the struggle for mere existence in which mercy was folly could wholly banish generosity and kindness from the earth it is not hard to understand the desperation with which men and women who under other conditions would have been full of gentleness and truth fought and tore each other in the scramble for gold when we realize what it meant to miss it what poverty was in that day for the body it was hunger and thirst torment by heat and frost in sickness neglect in health unremitting toil for the moral nature it meant oppression contempt and the patient endurance of indignity 
brutish associations from infancy, the loss of all the innocence of childhood, the grace of womanhood, the dignity of manhood. For the mind it meant the death of ignorance, the torpor of all those faculties which distinguish us from brutes, the reduction of life to a round of bodily functions. Ah, my friends, if such a fate as this were offered you and your children as the only alternative of success in the accumulation of wealth, how long do you fancy would you be in sinking to the moral level of your ancestors? Some two or three centuries ago an act of barbarity was committed in India, which, though the number of lives destroyed was but a few score, was attended by such peculiar horrors that its memory is likely to be perpetual. A number of English prisoners were shut up in a room containing not enough air to supply one-tenth their number. The unfortunates were gallant men, devoted comrades in service, but, as the agonies of suffocation began to take hold on them, they forgot all else, and became involved in a hideous struggle, each one for himself and against all others, to force a way to one of the small apertures of the prison at which alone it was possible to get a breath of air. It was a struggle in which men became beasts, and the recital of its horrors by the few survivors so shocked our forefathers that for a century later we find it a stock reference in their literature as a typical illustration of the extreme possibilities of human misery, as shocking in its moral as its physical aspect. They could scarcely have anticipated that to us the black hole of Calcutta, with its press of maddened men tearing and trampling one another in the struggle to win a place at the breathing-holes, would seem a striking type of the society of their age, it lacked something of being a complete type, however, for in the Calcutta black hole there were no tender women, no little children and old men and women, no cripples. They were at least all men, strong to bear, who suffered. When we reflect that the ancient order of which I have been speaking was prevalent up to the end of the nineteenth century, while to us the new order which succeeded it already seems antique, even our parents having known no other, we cannot fail to be astounded at the suddenness with which a transition so profound beyond all previous experience of the race must have been effected. Some observation of the state of men's minds during the last quarter of the nineteenth century will, however, in great measure, dissipate this astonishment. Though general intelligence in the modern sense could not be said to exist in any community at that time, yet, as compared with previous generations, the one then on the stage was intelligent. The inevitable consequence of even this comparative degree of intelligence had been a perception of the evils of society, such as had never before been general. It is quite true that these evils had been even worse, much worse, in previous ages. It was the increased intelligence of the masses which made the difference, as the dawn reveals the squalor of surroundings which in the darkness may have seemed tolerable. The keynote of the literature of the period was one of compassion for the poor and unfortunate, an indignant outcry against the failure of the social machinery to ameliorate the miseries of men. It is plain from these outbursts that the moral hideousness of the spectacle about them was, at least by flashes, fully realized by the best of the men of that time, and that the lives of some of the more sensitive and generous-hearted of them were rendered well-nigh unendurable by the intensity of their sympathies. Although the idea of the vital unity of the family of mankind, 
the reality of human brotherhood, was very far from being apprehended by them as the moral axiom it seems to us. Yet it is a mistake to suppose that there was no feeling at all corresponding to it. I could read you passages of great beauty from some of their writers, which show that the conception was clearly attained by a few, and no doubt vaguely by many more. Moreover, it must not be forgotten that the nineteenth century was in name Christian, and the fact that the entire commercial and industrial frame of society was the embodiment of the anti-Christian spirit must have had some weight, though I admit it was strangely little, with the nominal followers of Jesus Christ. When we inquire why it did not have more, why, in general, long after a vast majority of men had agreed as to the crying abuses of the existing social arrangement, they still tolerated it, or contented themselves with talking of petty reforms in it, we come upon an extraordinary fact. It was the sincere belief of even the best of men at that epoch that the only stable elements in human nature on which a social system could be safely founded were its worst propensities. They had been taught and believed that greed and self-seeking were all that held mankind together, and that all human associations would fall to pieces if anything were done to blunt the edge of these motives or curb their operation. In a word, they believed, even those who longed to believe otherwise, the exact reverse of what seems to us self-evident. They believed, that is, that the antisocial qualities of men, and not their social qualities, were what furnished the cohesive force of society. It seemed reasonable to them that men lived together solely for the purpose of overreaching and oppressing one another, and of being overreached and oppressed, and that while a society that gave full scope to these propensities could stand, there would be little chance for one based on the idea of cooperation for the benefit of all. It seems absurd to expect anyone to believe that convictions like these were ever seriously entertained by men, but that they were not only entertained by our great-grandfathers, but were responsible for the long delay in doing away with the ancient order, after a conviction of its intolerable abuses had become general, is as well established as any fact in history can be. Just here you will find the explanation of the profound pessimism of the literature of the last quarter of the nineteenth century, the note of melancholy in its poetry, and the cynicism of its humour. Feeling that the condition of the race was unendurable, they had no clear hope of anything better. They believed that the evolution of humanity had resulted in leading it into a cul-de-sac, and that there was no way of getting forward. The frame of men's minds at this time is strikingly illustrated by treatises which have come down to us, and may even now be consulted in our libraries by the curious, in which laborious arguments are pursued to prove that despite the evil plight of men, life was still, by some slight preponderance of considerations, probably better worth living than leaving. Despising themselves, they despised their Creator. There was a general decay of religious belief. Pale and watery gleams from skies thickly veiled by doubt and dread alone lighted up the chaos of earth. That men should doubt him whose breath is in their nostrils, or dread the hands that moulded them, seems to us indeed a pitiable insanity. But we must remember that children who are brave by day have sometimes foolish fears at night. The dawn has come since then. 
it is very easy to believe in the fatherhood of God in the twentieth century. Briefly, as must needs be in a discourse of this character, I have adverted to some of the causes which had prepared men's minds for the change from the old to the new order, as well as some causes of the conservatism of despair which for a while held it back after the time was ripe. To wonder at the rapidity with which the change was completed after its possibility was first entertained, is to forget the intoxicating effect of hope upon minds long accustomed to despair. The sunburst, after so long and dark a night, must needs have had a dazzling effect. From the moment men allowed themselves to believe that humanity after all had not been meant for a dwarf, that its squat stature was not the measure of its possible growth, but that it stood upon the verge of an avatar of limitless development, the reaction must needs have been overwhelming. It is evident that nothing was able to stand against the enthusiasm which the new faith inspired. Here, at last, men must have felt, was a cause compared with which the grandest of historic causes had been trivial. It was doubtless because it could have commanded millions of martyrs that none were needed. The change of a dynasty in a petty kingdom of the old world often cost more lives than did the revolution which set the feet of the human race at last in the right way. Doubtless it ill beseems one to whom the boon of life in our resplendent age has been vouchsafed to wish his destiny other, and yet I have often thought that I would fain exchange my share in this serene and golden day for a place in that stormy epoch of transition, when heroes burst the barred gate of the future and reveal to the kindling gaze of a hopeless race, in place of the blank wall that had closed its path, a vista of progress whose end, for very excess of light, still dazzles us. Ah, my friends, who will say that to have lived then, when the weakest influence was a lever to whose touch the centuries trembled, was not worth a share even in this era of fruition? You know the story of that last, greatest, and most bloodless of revolutions. In the time of one generation, man laid aside the social traditions and practices of barbarians and assumed a social order worthy of rational and human beings. Ceasing to be predatory in their habits, they became co-workers, and found in fraternity, at once, the signs of wealth and happiness. What shall I eat and drink, and wherewithal shall I be clothed, stated as a problem beginning and ending in self, had been an anxious and an endless one. But when once it was conceived, not from the individual, but the fraternal standpoint, what shall we eat and drink, and wherewithal shall we be clothed, its difficulties vanished. Poverty with servitude had been the result, for the mass of humanity, of attempting to solve the problem of maintenance from the individual standpoint, but no sooner had the nation become the sole capitalist and employer, that not alone did plenty replace poverty, but the last vestige of the serfdom of man to man disappeared from earth. Human slavery, so often vainly scotched, at last was killed. The means of subsistence, no longer doled out by men to women, by employer to employed, by rich to poor, was distributed from a common stock as among children at the father's table. It was impossible for a man any longer to use his fellow men as tools for his own profit. His esteem was the only sort of gain he could thenceforth make out of him. 
there was no more either arrogance or servility in the relations of human beings to one another. For the first time since the creation every man stood up straight before God. The fear of want and the lust of gain became extinct motives when abundance was assured to all and immoderate possessions made impossible of attainment. There were no more beggars nor almoners. Equity left charity without an occupation. The Ten Commandments became well-nigh obsolete in a world where there was no temptation to theft, no occasion to lie either for fear or favour, no room for envy where all were equal, and little provocation to violence where men were disarmed of power to injure one another. Humanity's ancient dream of liberty, equality, fraternity, mocked by so many ages, at last was realised. As in the old society, the generous, the just, the tender-hearted had been placed at a disadvantage by the possession of those qualities. So in the new society, the cold-hearted, the greedy, and self-seeking found themselves out of joint with the world. Now that the conditions of life for the first time ceased to operate as a forcing process to develop the brutal qualities of human nature, and the premium which had heretofore encouraged selfishness was not only removed, but placed upon unselfishness, it was for the first time possible to see what unperverted human nature really was like. The depraved tendencies which had previously overgrown and obscured the better to so large an extent now withered like cellar fungi in the open air, and the nobler qualities showed a sudden luxuriance which turned cynics into panegyrists, and for the first time in human history tempted mankind to fall in love with itself. Soon was fully revealed what the divines and philosophers of the old world never would have believed, that human nature in its essential qualities is good, not bad, that men by their natural intention and structure are generous, not selfish, pitiful, not cruel, sympathetic, not arrogant, godlike in aspirations, instinct with divinest impulses of tenderness and self-sacrifice, images of God indeed, not the travesties upon him they had seemed. The constant pressure, through numberless generations, of conditions of life which might have perverted angels, had not been able to essentially alter the natural nobility of the stock, and these conditions once removed, like a bent tree, it had sprung back to its normal uprightness. To put the whole matter in a nutshell of a parable, let me compare humanity in the olden time to a rose-bush planted in a swamp, watered with black bog-water, breathing miasmatic fogs by day, and chilled with poison dews at night. Innumerable generations of gardeners had done their best to make it bloom, but beyond an occasional half-open bud with a worm at the heart, their efforts had been unsuccessful. Many, indeed, claimed that the bush was no rose-bush at all, but a noxious shrub, fit only to be uprooted and burned. The gardeners, for the most part, however, held that the bush belonged to the rose family, but had some ineradicable taint about it, which prevented the buds from coming out, and accounted for its generally sickly condition. There were few, indeed, who maintained that the stock was good enough, that the trouble was in the bog, and that under more favourable conditions the plant might be expected to do better. But these persons were not regular gardeners, and being condemned by the latter as mere theorists and daydreamers, 
were, for the most part, so regarded by the people. Moreover, urged some eminent moral philosophers, even conceding for the sake of the argument that the bush might possibly do better elsewhere, it was a more valuable discipline for the buds to try to bloom in a bog than it would be under more favourable conditions. The buds that succeeded in opening might indeed be very rare, and the flowers pale and scentless, but they represented far more moral effort than if they had bloomed spontaneously in a garden. The regular gardeners and the moral philosophers had their way. The bush remained rooted in the bog, and the old course of treatment went on. Continually new varieties of forcing mixtures were applied to the roots, and more recipes than could be numbered, each declared by its advocates the best and only suitable preparation, were used to kill the vermin and remove the mildew. This went on a very long time. Occasionally someone claimed to observe a slight improvement in the appearance of the bush, but there were quite as many who declared that it did not look so well as it used to. On the whole there could not be said to be any marked change. Finally, during a period of general despondency as to the prospects of the bush where it was, the idea of transplanting it was again mooted, and this time found favour. "'Let us try it,' was the general voice. "'Perhaps it may thrive better elsewhere, and here it is certainly doubtful if it be worth cultivating longer.' So it came about that the rose-bush of humanity was transplanted, and set in sweet, warm, dry earth, where the sun bathed it, the stars wooed it, and the south wind caressed it. Then it appeared that it was indeed a rose-bush. The vermin and the mildew disappeared, and the bush was covered with most beautiful red roses, whose fragrance filled the world. It is a pledge of the destiny, appointed for us, that the Creator has set in our hearts an infinite standard of achievement, judged by which our past attainments seem always insignificant, and the goal never nearer. Had our forefathers conceived a state of society in which men should live together like brethren dwelling in unity, without strives or envying, violence or overreaching, and where, at the price of a degree of labour not greater than health demands, in their chosen occupations, they should be wholly freed from care for the morrow, and left with no more concern for their livelihood than trees which are watered by unfailing streams. Had they conceived such a condition, I say, it would have seemed to them nothing less than paradise. They would have confounded it with their idea of heaven, nor dreamt that there could possibly lie further beyond anything to be desired or striven for. But how is it with us, who stand on this height which they gazed up to? Already we have well-nigh forgotten, except when it is especially called to our minds by some occasion like the present, that it was not always with men as it is now. It is a strain on our imaginations to conceive the social arrangements of our immediate ancestors. We find them grotesque. The solution of the problem of physical maintenance, so as to banish care and crime, so far from seeming to us an ultimate attainment, appears but as a preliminary to anything like real human progress. We have but relieved ourselves of an impertinent and needless harassment which hindered our ancestor from undertaking the real ends of existence. We are merely stripped for the race, no more. We are like a child which has just learned to stand upright and to walk. It is a great event, from the child's point of view, when he first walks. Perhaps he fancies that there can be little beyond that achievement, but a year later he has forgotten that he could not always walk. 
his horizon did but widen when he rose, and enlarge as he moved. A great event indeed, in one sense, was his first step, but only as a beginning, not as the end. His true career was but then first entered on. The enfranchisement of humanity in the last century, from mental and physical absorption in working and scheming for the mere bodily necessities, may be regarded as a species of second birth of the race, without which its first birth to an existence that was but a burden would forever have remained unjustified, but whereby it is now abundantly vindicated. Since then, humanity has entered on a new phase of spiritual development, an evolution of higher faculties, the very existence of which in human nature our ancestors scarcely suspected. In place of the dreary hopelessness of the nineteenth century, its profound pessimism as to the future of humanity, the animating idea of the present age is an enthusiastic conception of the opportunities of our earthly existence, and the unbounded possibilities of human nature. The betterment of mankind from generation to generation, physically, mentally, morally, is recognized as the one great object supremely worthy of effort and of sacrifice. We believe the race for the first time to have entered on the realization of God's ideal of it, and each generation must now be a step upward. Do you ask what we look for when unnumbered generations shall have passed away? I answer, the way stretches far before us, but the end is lost in light. For twofold is the return of man to God who is our home, the return of the individual by the way of death, and the return of the race by the fulfilment of the evolution, when the divine secret hidden in the germ shall be perfectly unfolded. With a tear for the dark past, turn we then to the dazzling future, and, veiling our eyes, press forward. The long and weary winter of the race is ended. Its summer has begun. Humanity has burst the chrysalis. The heavens are before it. End of chapter 26